0: This is Language Made Difficult, an untranslatable part of the Specgram podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling nerds, Bill Sproul. Hey. Keith Slater. Hey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I was going to try to imitate Bill. (laughs) I don't think I can do it. Never mind. Great to be with you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And Sherry Wells Jensen.
2: Hi there.
0: And also joining us again on the program is Hedvig Hirgord.
2: Hi, yeah.
0: <laughs> Welcome back and thanks for visiting with us again. Thank you. Let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Once again, I have three language related items, and our theme is Reduce, Reuse, and Recycle Part 2. So once again, we are going to repurpose some difficult items from previous podcasts and see if you guys can get them right this time. Oh, well, that
1: went well last
0: time. Yeah. Well, for me, it did. And for me. So. As before and as always, two are true and one is false. And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Item number one. In a dialect of the Caucasian language Andi, women make the ergative absolutive distinction, while men do not. Item number two. In the Dravidian language Toda, you can't say your own name. When you introduce yourself, you have to get someone else to say your name. Item number three, the literary register of the Niger-Congo language, Teketege, has verbal prefixes available to indicate the basics of the weather at the time of the action. Who'd like to go first? These all sound
3: familiar. Mm. I'll take a stab at it. All right. The second one, I believe, because that could just be a politeness issue. The third one, I also believe, because literary registers get called literary by doing obnoxious things. <laughs> the first one, I don't believe, because can you imagine a situation where dudes are the ones that avoid positioning themselves as agents when they want to? <laughs> okay, that in a language named Andy? No, no, that's that's unbelievable.
0: Okay, who'd like to go
1: next? Well, I'll go next. I have a different take on that one. I mean, that's not the normal kind of ergative split, you expect, you know, third person or yeah. anyway. But if there's a cultural distinction, I think usually the ergatives are used for violent sports like, you know, Russian politics or something. <laughs> but maybe in this case, in Andy, in this language, the politicians are mostly women. So they're the ones who use the ergatives. So I, I can imagine that that seems plausible. Not being able to introduce yourself with your own name. I think this would be so helpful in the case of mixers among academic linguists, because, you know, we all know that, Because of saying our names so frequently, we reduce them phonologically to the point that they're not recognizable. And so we're all embarrassed to say our own names. This would be a really useful rule to have among linguists at parties. But whether it's true or not, I don't know. The verbal prefixes that indicate weather and time of action, you know, English could do that too, but I've never heard anybody do it. <laughs> I think I'll go with number three.
2: Mm.
0: Okay, so the verbal prefixes for the weather. Okay.
1: The verbal prefixes, that's, that's right out.
2: Mm.
0: All right, Sherry?
2: I'm going to go, yeah. So I actually, I like number three, and I was going to say that it sounds familiar, but I think I'm going to deny that it sounds familiar. I'm going to pretend like I've never heard any of these before, even I'm pretty sure (laughs) they have heard a couple people. But if I admit that, then I'll be wronger than. I ordinarily would be. So we can just pretend like I didn't. But I like this one, and I think I probably liked it before. So at least if I get it wrong, I'm being consistent. So I think number three is true. <laughs> I like number one, too, for a couple reasons. You know, if you've got a, a language where women can be clear about who's doing work and who's not doing work, then I think you might as well go with that. And then also it strikes me that the ergative version could be a more traditional or a more proper form And so wearing my sociolinguistic hat, which I don't really have one of for a minute, (laughs) I'm going to say I think that's possible. And I don't like number two because it simply can't work. Because whenever I'm in a party and talking to people and the person goes away and I say, hey, hey, who was that? Nobody knows.
1: (laughs) It's because they're afraid to say their own name.
2: No, they're afraid to say the other guy's name. Someone they else's don't name. Yeah. I just don't know. <laughs> Nobody knows each other's names at these parties. So no one would ever meet anyone. You know, so I, we have I, I'm constantly hearing it's that one guy. You know that one guy with the office, it's like two doors down from you. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> You teach a class for 14 weeks and you say, who's absent? And they all say, oh, that one guy with the hat. I don't know what his name is. <laughs> <laughs> so I think two can work. Okay. All right.
0: All right, Hedvig, I let you go last so I can give you hints.
2: <laughs> okay. You're going to give me hints
4: now or should I
0: stop? No, no, only if you get it wrong. <laughs>
4: oh, okay, So, well, the first one I was thinking about, so it doesn't necessarily mean that the language of the men is nominative accusative. That could be neutral or tripartite or something, right?
0: It says what it says. <laughs> yeah. <possible. laughs>
4: right now I'm working with Polynesian languages and I know that what people call ergative absolutive can be a lot of disagreement of what you call ergative. So it might be that the language actually used to have like a tripartite solution and then women who tends to be the one to do the progressive to tend to adapt and First might have lumped some of them together. So I'm gonna guess that that one's correct. I know that you can find funny like gender distinctions, differences between the different genders, languages. So I think that one sounds true to me. The Dravidian language, that one I don't know about. I wonder how obligatory that is but can i get a hint about that
0: (laughs) (laughs) no you gotta talk yourself into a bad position before i help you out of it
4: (laughs) okay so dravidian language spoken in india or sri lanka i don't know yeah fair enough like that's not that weird but imagine that it's not like all members of society Mm. i don't think this is true in all contexts but it could be true for a lot of context. The The literary register I thought was interesting because literary registers, that's probably taken from the Bible. And like people translating from Indo-European languages too strictly usually leads to funny <laughs> things in literary language. And I don't think they'd be bothered with weather.
0: That sounds reasonable. Yeah.
4: And also <laughs> literary Uh-oh. is when you write things. And it's a medium that you can consume at any time. So I just don't think they'd be too interested in situation-specific things like weather. So I think that was false.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> don't you have anything <laughs> to say to her, Trey? I, I, I you think you need talking? to help her
1: out there, Trey.
0: No, no, I don't think <laughs> so. I think
2: you should be kind I, to the guest and help her if she's going to <laughs> Trey.
0: I gave her a tiny little hint, just a tiny little nudge.
2: Oh, what? what was that?
0: He said, that sounds reasonable. Yeah.
2: Oh, that's not a tiny nudge. (laughs) That's a tiny
0: nudge. And it was all that was necessary. So let us discuss. Number one. I'm disgusted. (laughs) In the Caucasian language, Andi, women do make the ergative absolute distinction and men do not. That is true. Number two, in the Dravidian language, Toda, you can't say your own name. That is true. And number three, in the literary register of the Niger-Congo language, Teketege, with the verbal prefixes, I just made that up. However, I did listen to your complaints about it last time that made you think it was less likely and changed it.
1: (laughs) To make it even less, less likely.
0: To make it more likely, yes. Because uh, you guys were complaining. I believe Keith in particular said, no one can remember what the weather was like yesterday. How would you possibly do this? And so I made it a literary register so that for the purposes of telling a story, you might want to lay out the, you know.
1: Because the weather is always the same for, uh, yes. Did I pick this one?
0: So, yes, Keith, you got it right.
1: (laughs) Oh, what a surprise.
0: (laughs) So apparently you have a better memory
3: than you let on.
4: (laughs) You want to make it even more likely, you can change it to like an oral narrative register.
3: Hmm. See, I had had an idea sort of like the biblical text thing, only somehow they had gotten left with hundreds of bulwer litten novels <laughs> and so it's like okay it was a dark and stormy night and then they just reanalyze that as a complex preview, and then you get it was a balmy sunny morning it was a uh, yeah
4: <laughs> yeah, because that's the problem, right? When you translate the Bible and things into languages that have, like, for example, lots of evidentiality, and the Bible doesn't specify like how somebody knows something, and then they just like try and make it up.
1: You just have to make it up. Mm. Yeah, it's actually, a very interesting problem.
4: Yeah, yeah, it is.
1: Mm. So I've talked to. Bible translators about, say, what about Matthew? Matthew was an eyewitness to certain things. Paul was an eyewitness to certain things.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: But do you want to throw that in everywhere? It's an interesting problem.
0: Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Huh. Well, another interesting problem is the scores. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a problem, I'm doing better.
2: I don't think it's all that interesting, actually. I I have a a nascent (laughs) desire to just make this less competitive, because I I really feel like we should get along better.
0: Actually, maybe the scores will help everyone get along a little bit better, because Keith, Sherry, and the guests are tied at 50%.
1: Wait a minute, I was ahead of the guests last time, and we both got it right now. The
0: guests have fewer instances they're working on, because we don't have a guest every time. Uh, okay.
1: More math. That's yep. more math, isn't That's it? It's more math, yep.
0: <laughs> so you're 11 out of 22, and the guests are 9 out of 18. Mm-hmm. And then Bill, who probably can't think properly because he can't talk properly, <laughs> is bringing up the rear at the moment with 46%. And I've pulled out to a commanding lead of 59%. Woohoo. Oh. So you guys will never catch me now. What's to no, we... be
2: done? I think it's time to change the rules again. <laughs> I think it's time to start cheating again.
0: <laughs> again? <laughs> When did you cheat before? Yeah, I was
2: just gonna say, what? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I guess if I cheated before, I would have been doing better, wouldn't I? Well, yeah. you were
0: mysteriously ahead for a very long time. What we need to do that is that let the really guests fine. go first more often.
2: I think so. Uh, Courteously. <laughs> and let try be courteous to the guests. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, right. how would that
0: though? She thinks I would be obligated to give hints. I'll
2: help. He would, oh, You so would that give hints, reasonable. and
1: then we would all get it right, and then we would be one big happy family.
0: See, so you've assumed that my desire to be courteous is greater than my desire to win. You have assumed <laughs> incorrectly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we didn't assume. We hypothesized.
4: Hmm.
0: I guess that's enough of lies, damn lies, and linguistics. So thanks, Hedvig, for hanging out with us.
4: Thank you. This is fun. Thank you.
0: And uh, we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right. So now it's time for a little bit of listener email. Colin writes, I was also thinking about solution as a verb. That one's been bugging me for years, but I finally realized that it's not just a debasement of solve. Its significance is that it focuses on activity rather than results. Solving problems requires that you actually get stuff done. Solutioning Issues lets you give yourself an A for effort while completely failing to improve the situation. So a horrible bastardization in the service of Weasley corporate ass covering. Colin also writes, I think issue is a casualty of issue tracking software which deals with a grab bag of stuff ranging from actual bugs and problems to requests for features, documentation, and nice-to-haves, which all may or may not require any action to be taken. I think ask as a noun is just a sign of sloppy thinking. It says, I have this inchoate yearning which I haven't bothered to articulate, but I'm dropping it in your lap anyway. Colin finishes. Okay, enough of my yapping. Thanks for the podcasts. So thank you, Colin, for writing in. Do the rest of you guys have any comments on what Colin had to say there? That's
2: a big
3: (laughs) does. I had made it to my current age without knowing that solutioning was being used as a verb. I'm not sure whether to thank Colin for telling me that that's happening or complain to him well clearly
0: your age is a bit advanced because we well i've talked about it on the podcast before apparently you (laughs) slept through that part
3: well bill doesn't listen to what you say
0: oh i see and
1: it's, it's
3: real when someone else says it. I see.
0: <laughs> Trey's just making yeah. stuff up, but that Colin guy he made up, no, he said...
1: <laughs> That's
3: true about linguists in general.
1: I mean, who could believe stuff they say? Like Niger-Congo languages with verbal prefixes about the weather. I mean, nobody <laughs> believes this nonsense. It's all oh, made up. Hmm.
0: Anyway, I do agree that solutioning issues is much less active and effective than solving problems. <sighs>
1: It's all so depressing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that happy note, let's have a word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back to discuss an article in the news. Zero Zero Morphemes morphemes Direct. direct. Inexplicable data? Problem tokens? Out of ideas without anyone to turn to? Look no further. Buy, buy, buy Zero Zero Morphemes. morphemes. Zero Morphemes turn an implausible analysis into an impressive analysis. We are overstocked and will not be be undersold. Get the last 2014 models half-price, zero zero down, down, zero zero APR. APR. Our zero morphemes are top quality guaranteed. Guaranteed. And cover all the major morphological categories. Tense, aspect, number, case, agreement, polypersonal, you bet. You You name name it, it, we have have it. it. Plus, if you order now, we will throw in a deflator morpheme. Absolutely Absolutely free. free. Russian genitives, not a problem. Watch as you add your new deflator morpheme to the citation form of Kniga and produce knig. Subtraction Subtraction by by addition. Operators are standing by.
3: Order Order now. now. Welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Well, Scientific American has brought linguists more joyful news this week, as yet another psychologist politely points out that comprehension and production may not be exactly the same thing. So we've got this study by a guy whose last name is Lind coming out of Lund University. So there's some kind of like oblaut going on there. But the um, study involves, number one, distracting people by getting them doing a Stroop test, which is that kind of activity where you're trying to say the color you're seeing, which is usually a color word, but they're showing you a different color. So you see the word red, but the word itself is in green and you're trying to say green. So it's a standard kind of psychologist thing to make people nervous during a study, right? (laughs) It's just that part of the social interchange with psychologists where you get nervous and you don't know what's going on. But the added twist they put on this one, instead of like putting spiders on people or any of the normal things you do during a stream of (laughs) sloths and his colleagues fiddled with the sound that the people were hearing from their own recorded voices. So they're saying words, but the echo back they get later has a different word in it. What they're saying is not what they then hear themselves say. The word they're producing is not the one that they then hear. Now, you would think if people sort of, I plan to say the following things and then they say them, they would get highly upset when something else comes out of their mouth, right? Mm -hmm. Because when that kind of thing happens, it might be one of those situations where you're about to sound echoey and then start saying prophetic things or something. That's just not a good thing especially if the voices keep changing. What they found was people did not get nervous. In fact, a lot of times they didn't notice it at all. And it was easy to change people's minds about what they had said. The takeaway that Lund was drawing from this is that people don't really plan to say things, really. So they don't necessarily remember what they said. They rely on hearing their own voices to know what they said. That would explain a lot of politicians. I
5: think.
3: <laughs> it would certainly explain a lot of faculty and university administration. It has some unnerving implications for that situation where you know you told a class something and then they all told you, no, here's a completely false thing about language that we all remember that you said, right? <laughs>
2: It's in my notes.
3: It's in my notes, (laughs) right? It it opens up all of those cans of worms, as well as just this whole thing about, uh uh-oh, what if we need different grammars for comprehension and production? Ray Jackendoff has been making noises about that for a while, but heaven forbid we credit the man for anything. So (laughs) what do you all think? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think using the Stroop test is a big methodological flaw because, like you said, it's, it's well-known to cause all sorts of random weird things to come out of your mouth. And to me, it's the moral equivalent of teaching someone to juggle with plates and then smashing one on the floor behind them and then telling them they dropped it. They go, oh, yeah, OK, I guess so. <laughs> the Stroop test in particular is just so jarring and disconcerting. And you know, your brain is really trying to do two things at once. So the fact that you can't keep track of what it was you said isn't really a surprise. On the other hand, like you said about politicians, if we could really make this work, and if we could not just play back recordings of what people said, but synthesize things and match them up, we could show politicians videos of themselves saying things like, I will refrain from partisan politics and make reasonable efforts to reach fair compromises on issues that affect the daily lives of American (laughs) citizens. And that would be swell.
1: (laughs) That would be swell if the average politician was able to comprehend that input.
0: That was actually oh, complicated set set. I, I knew there had to be a fatal flaw in my plan. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Your plan is a good one for some other country, I think. <laughs> well, I was confused by something that, I mean, I didn't go read the actual article. I only read the Scientific American regurgitation of it. So maybe I missed something. But so the researchers seem to be saying that we have no detailed plan for what we're going to say. And so then we only discover after we hear ourselves what it was that we planned to say. I mean, that we didn't plan to say. What it was that we said without a plan, right? Mm -hmm. So they seem to be saying that we don't have a plan until after it's executed. And that didn't make any sense to me, but it did sound better than optimality theory, which seems to suggest that we can't decide how to pronounce things until we've tested all the different ways that we might not pronounce them.
0: I was actually not thinking this was likely, but then that sentence that you just said (laughs) had planning involved. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so and, you
1: know, there wasn't much of a plan, but now that I've heard it, I know what it was.
0: I do think you're right that it's better than the optimality theory approach of "here are the million things
3: <laughs> I didn't say." In defense of optimality theory, though,
2: <laughs> wait, did you it, plan to say that, or because really,
3: I don't? Yeah, think yeah I a know. That I really I, I, to yes, I did because I had to work at that. <laughs> <laughs> It hurts, doesn't it? (laughs) In defense of optimality theory, it doesn't claim to be a production model. So it doesn't claim to be a reception model or a production model. So exactly. Yes. It's kind of innocent of doing anything wrong because it doesn't actually do anything.
2: It just it solutions, it issues, it solutionizes issues. Is that what it does?
3: Yeah. It's solutioning. It's a solutioning, it, yeah. It defines a solution space. hmm <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, I think the reason to be upset, if you're going to get upset, is if you figure that what you heard back was actually worse than what it is you think that you might have had in your mind to plan to say. Because if they made people sound smarter, then I would just go, well, yeah, I said that. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> that would be an interesting test. If the word is red and it's in green and you're supposed to say green, so you'd be smarter if you said green, so if you accidentally said red, and then you'd be dumber if you said yellow, because it's like totally not even remotely right. <laughs> That would be an interesting test to see if they were more likely to agree with, oh, I got the answer right, versus I sound like a freaking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I don't know if they controlled for that.
3: Another thing about this experiment that I'm not sure about, because I also only read the Scientific American write-up, is my impression is they're doing all this in Swedish.
0: Ah, uh, Yes, that was true. They did um, that say means- that.
3: There's Swedishness to it, which makes it all different, right?
2: Why would we have to have the same language comprehension and production model for each language? I mean, really, why do we need
3: There's that, that, but it's also, I think, probably anything in Swedish sounds more persuasive because it was pronounced correctly in Swedish. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what the percentage of the world population is that can pronounce things correctly in Swedish? It's very small. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't know how many people haven't even tried. It's true.
3: Probably well, there, a lot of Swedes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the other disturbing thing about this whole article, which just began to disturb me when Bill started talking about it, was Bill's current vowel devoicings that he has and his vowels, then the vowel quality. I really perceived him to say they made people do a strip dance. <laughs> instead <of> a strip- <laughs> And I thought, yes, indeed that's I missed that part of the article. I can see where that would be very nervous making. And I, I wanted to know where they got human subjects to agree to that. But I guess Bill didn't mean to say that.
3: No, you know you kind of figure it if most of your subjects knew what a Stroop test was, they wouldn't agree to that either. <laughs>
1: I think if we try, we can convince Bill that he did say
0: that.
2: Oh, see, now I think he said it, Trace. You can just edit that in for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, post-production,
1: you know.
0: So at basically what you're saying is I should edit the audio so that at the hearing, and the trial, <laughs> we'll have evidence saying he did in fact <laughs> say strip dance instead of strip test.
3: But at that point, I can say, Your Honor, there's research that shows that you can change people's perceptions. <laughs> So none of this is admissible.
0: (laughs) So this whole thing reminds me of uh, one of my favorite quotes, which is attributed to E.M. Forster, but that may or may not actually be true. But it's, um, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? And I do feel that way sometimes. So despite making fun of the Stroop test, which I do think is still a big flaw, there is something about forcing your thoughts through the lens of words that clarifies them. The thoughts, not the words. As Keith so amply demonstrated earlier. (laughs)
3: Well, Trey, it's only the clear part that will go through a lens.
2: Mm. Ooh, that's deep (laughs) and coherent like light. Wow.
3: I've got a nascent meme.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I always have methodologically, I suppose I object to this. But if you are one of those people that collect speech chairs and you collect your own and being a rich source of errors in speech myself, I never had to actually listen to anyone else talk if I wanted a collection of speech errors. You can tell sometimes when you're about to say something that's an error. And every time I would write one of those down, people would go, no, no. But I'm quite certain sometimes that I'm about you, to say something.
1: You collected speech errors that you hadn't made but just thought you were about to make? Is that what you yeah, said?
2: Well, well, you know, I didn't use any of those for anything except I have a little list of them with little asterisks on them indicating that it was that type. But it was really clear to me that that's what I was about to say.
3: That's where syntax articles come from.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that is meta-level syntax over self-judgment type things. That's just, <laughs> I don't even know. It's,
2: Speaking of not planning. You've
0: completely, <laughs> completely destroyed my ability to plan a sentence with that. It's just yes. so unbelievable.
2: No, it's clear. It happens. It's
0: clear. So you had a nascent speech error. You nipped it in the bud. And then you managed to write it down anyway.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, I think you should write a paper about that. I do not see why that is bad evidence. It is perfectly valid for some purpose, probably syntax.
3: It it would support (laughs) optimality theory.
1: There you go. You rejected candidates that were suboptimal or whatever you
3: call them.
2: I've become conscious of my inner optimality theory. Oh, my God. Is there treatment for that? Because I need it.
3: (laughs) You know, after a while, you can teach any subject by just looking at the class and saying, Richness of the base. It was, it was all there. Every thought they needed was in there. Don't you need
1: to raise one eyebrow when you say
3: that. Of course. I can hear the eyebrow.
2: And gesture grandly. I think the grand gesture is
3: critical. I really do. I don't always magically teach with linguistic theory, but when I do, I use optimality theory. <laughs> world's most interesting linguist
0: (laughs) i see your nascent meme has erupted into our
3: conversation now it's turned into informational shingles i don't think i like that (laughs) yeah it tingled at first
0: (laughs) okay so is there anything actually useful from this We probably aren't going to get it to work on politicians. I was thinking of whether I could try to convince all of you that, you know, you had all said, Trey really is the talented one. I'm so grateful he lets me be on the show. But I don't think that's going to work.
1: No. Well, let's see. You know, a long time ago, we discussed the little thing that plays your voice back to you with a very short time lag. Yep. But long enough to cause cognitive dissonance to the point that you're frozen. And it was a way to shut people up. Right. So we had a little clicker that did that, as I recall. And it was used with much levity on our own program. This is similar, right? Although it didn't have any kind of effect like that. (laughs) So. Even though conceptually it's kind of in the same line, it doesn't bear out the hypothesis that the little clicker was going to work.
2: Well, I yeah, think we you... should not allow Trey to think about this anymore because on the next Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics, perhaps we can arrange a little something. But that would be making him think that we said different things. How are we going to do this? <laughs> we could just change what he, changes his answers, right? So that we get to be right for once.
0: I don't think you can do that from there. Can't I? All the answers are kept in a vault under lock and key. <laughs> <laughs> you can't change them,
2: but we can change what you think that you told us. hmm <laughs> and then we have a verbal contract,
0: right? but but they have platonic truth, and so it can't be changed. It just is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I thought for a second you were going to try to go for I don't know if you've seen pictures of this online of kids who try to write the word true and false. At the same time, they write a T and it has a little tiny extra stem on it. So it kind of looks oh. like an F. <laughs> kind of. And mm. then...
2: Oh, like you do in fill in the blanks, right?
3: Or like you do when you can't remember if that particular word ends in A-R-E or E-R-E. So you kind of put that funny scribble in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That could yeah. be an A. It could be try Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. I found the example online real quick. So the T has a little bar across it in the middle. The R kind of loops around and could be an A that wasn't completed. And then the U is an L that then curves up into an S. (laughs) And then they both end in E, of course. So I thought you were going to try to come up with the verbal equivalent of that, which would be even harder, to say both true and false at the same time in your responses to lies, damn lies, and linguistics.
2: Trolls.
1: Well, frankly, what we're aware of with lies, damn lies, and linguistics, is it's much like this research we just read about. You don't know the answers until after you've heard our answers, and then you make up the one that you want to be
0: correct, right?
1: As a result of monitoring the uh, input you get
0: from us. I just realized how I can win at lies, damn lies, and linguistics. This is perfect. What I do is whatever you say, I will just go back and edit, especially like Keith, you always say something like, I think this is the false one, right? (laughs) You can can go back and chat. In the right place.
1: (laughs) Of course, you can rearrange things however you like, Hmm. as long as you're in charge of editing. But the floggings may move up into the editorial (laughs) board if... (laughs) It may migrate upward from the intern level if there's too much monkey business.
2: Isn't it clear that that's what Trey does already? I mean, we don't ever miss any of those, do we? Not really. I don't think I've ever missed any.
1: Not underlyingly.
3: (laughs) I always give the answer that is the correct answer to what he should have asked. All right.
0: I feel a nascent personal attack coming on. So I think perhaps it's time to end this segment.
1: I feel a nascent pause.
0: And there it was. There it was. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be back after a word from our sponsor to discuss some ideas that are ready for retirement.
4: Language Made Difficult is brought to you by humans who read grammars, not to be confused with computers.
0: Every year, the folks at edge.org ask an interesting question and let lots of scientists, philosophers, and other big thinkers answer it. The 2014 question was, what scientific idea is ready for retirement? You can read the full list at the edge.org website, but there were a few language-related examples. Benjamin K. Bergen said universal grammar, which I think is one we can all get behind. N.J. Enfield said that we should get rid of the idea that a science of language should be concerned only with competence. Another one I like. Dan Everett suggested that we get rid of the notions of instinct and innateness. John McWhorter wanted to ditch the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis in particular that languages condition worldviews. And Dan Sperber was against the standard approach to meaning. Interesting. Well, folks, I'd like to add to the deletion cue the notion of getting rid of the idea that functions of the mind, including anything related to language or grammar, is rule based. I don't think there are any hard and fast rules for anything. It's all stochastic and based on general learning. Anyway... Wait a minute, you're saying there are no rules. I do not believe there are any rules, no. And that's not a rule. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) No, it's a principle. (laughs) Oh, it's a principle. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any parameters. But That was a nascent rule. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it has the added benefit of tossing out universal grammar and the whole competence performance distinction, too. And the question of whether language conditions worldview is orthogonal, so I don't really address that. So who wants to go next? Keith?
1: Well, I have something I want to throw out. I'm not really a theoretician, so I can't throw out some big picture thing. But I have something smaller, which has a lot of theory hiding behind it. And that is, I think what we in linguistics need to throw out is arrows. So arrows are very popular in linguistics. And as best I could tell, in all the diagrams that arrows show up in, they indicate some kind of change of state. But they generally hide the fact that there's some initial state that we don't actually understand. And some change process that we don't actually understand and some final state which is either hypothetical or we also don't understand it. And so I think that arrows, they're just hiding a lot. It's a notation for hiding ignorance. And I think this time to get rid of it.
0: Hmm. But but after your description, maybe arrows are all that hold linguistics together.
1: <laughs> oh no. They suggest that we think there might be some principle somewhere. <laughs> But they generally conceal the fact that we don't know what it is.
0: Yeah, I think we need to get rid of you because this is a terrible, (laughs) terrible, dangerous idea. What's going to be left?
1: (laughs) Well, very little. I started out thinking what we need to throw out is underlying representations, but that's too obvious. And I think really it's something more fundamental.
2: Well, if you ignore underlying representations, they're gone anyway. So you don't even need to throw them out.
1: That's right. And I've been ignoring them for a long time.
2: Do you think, is it all non-alphabetic and numeric characters or just arrows? Because, you know, if we get rid of the pointy finger, that would re- get rid of one of our problems. Well, mm-hmm.
1: I think that's just an arrow. <laughs> oh, is that
2: just underlyingly an arrow? <laughs> <It's> just,
1: uh, <laughs> yeah, <I'm> lying, like No, <laughs> no, no, no underlying representation.
0: <laughs>
3: is it an aloe arrow?
0: It's uh, it's maybe an arky arrow.
3: It's an arrow that's got the feature plus handy. <laughs>
1: just handy to drop in there when you need an arrow. So what do the rest of you think we should toss out?
3: The idea I had that is ready for retirement in that sense that it really should not do a lot of work anymore, but it's okay if it wears like Hawaiian floral print shirts and wanders around warm areas and takes photos of tourist things. Um, Yeah, that kind of retirement. Mm -hmm. The notion that there are segmental phonemes that are independent from syllabic positions. So if you look at a lot of languages, you can have voiced and voiceless stops at the beginning of the syllable, but maybe you can only have voiced ones at the end. There's a lot of languages that have asymmetric choices, depending on where you are in the syllable. But we keep pretending that, oh, that's the same B as at the beginning, as you can have at the end, you just can't pick P at the end or something like that. Whereas, really, if you're talking about distinctions, the fact you don't have the same distinctions in one position means those are not the same phonemes.
0: Wait, are you trying to say that H and ng aren't just allophones of each other?
3: Well, there's a special exception for that. <laughs> because... <laughs> They obviously exist in a platonic state. I think there's an Uh, arrow between them. (laughs) Yeah, they're probably a bi-directional one, so it it (laughs) does whatever you want to.
0: No, it's all statistics.
3: Separate from that, it really is a three-way thing. It's the H, the N, and the 50-hertz hum (laughs) that you never actually hear, but you know that it's the same sound. But separate from that... It's notationally convenient when you're describing a language to write the same symbol in more than one syllabic position. It saves you time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we shouldn't go around pretending it's really the same thing. What
0: about the fact that even when there are clear phonetic distinctions, say, take the L's in leaf and feel, right? If you take the the one from the end and put it at the front, you get old leaf. And that sounds crazy and weird.
2: Just on Chicago.
0: (laughs) Like I said, crazy and weird. I stand by my statement. (laughs) (laughs) But most speakers aren't even aware of that distinction until you point it out to them. And actually teaching them that distinction, you know, for example, as a way to improve their pronunciation in, say, Spanish, right? Just always use the one in leaf, even at the end of the syllable. There seems to be some psychological reality there that that's just one L, even though those are clearly phonetically different.
3: But nowhere in English... Does that distinction matter? Okay. Okay. So what I don't know, this would be, and I should know this, but I don't. If you take a German speaker who actually says a voiced sound at the end of a word, like actually pronounces a B instead of B, do Germans hear that or do they think the person just said a B? Hmm. Because they hear the difference at the beginning of a word, but German has that rule that D voices final sounds, right? Sure. Right. So to the extent that they don't hear it, and, you know, I should have checked this, but I didn't think of it. If they don't really hear it, that's kind of like saying, well, in that position, even though there's a clear phonetic distinction between them, they're not hearing it. And even if they do hear it, it might just seem like a weird little accent or something.
0: Well, yeah, or a minor speech error. I'm remembering an experiment we did way back in phonetics, where there are actually words that had tiny little cough sounds in the middle of them, yeah, and people don't even hear Ooh, right. it, right? So mm-hmm. I don't think that you can then argue about relatively fine and unexpected phonetic detail compared to just a cough in the middle of a word that people don't even notice. So clearly there's some expectation and people aren't always listening carefully. And then once you make them aware of what they're doing and say, well, listen really carefully and look for something kind of strange, then that's not really normal anymore
3: but the whole concept behind phonemes is they involve things that you are listening for
1: the the thing is bill that phonology got rid of phonemes years ago i mean i think i think you're a little behind here yes
2: (laughs) (laughs) we like our phonemes though
1: it's not that i'm defending phonology phonemes are pretty useful if you wanted to say design a writing system just for example but as a theoretical construct they've been gone for years
0: Let's take it to a meta level really quickly. Can we all agree that we should retire the idea of getting rid of phonemes? Because we all seem to be pro-phoneme. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that means we've got to retire Bill,
0: right? No, Bill wants <laughs> to keep phonemes. We all want to keep phonemes. We're retiring okay, Bill, the idea of getting rid of phonemes.
1: Okay, oh. retire the idea of getting rid yes. Yes. yes.
3: There okay. so, are plenty of people, you know, it's that thing about retirement is a theory can be useless for ages before it's retired.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: so, yeah, people have been deconstructing the idea of phonemes for ages, breaking them into feature bundles and so forth. But they're in every damn textbook we've got. This is true. They keep getting used in discussions. Talking about feature bundles and having the same features across a syllable is basically pretending you have phonemes. You're just not admitting it. <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure
2: that they're real. I think they're real for some people, maybe, and not real for others. Having tried to teach dark l versus light l over and over every year, right? A couple times a year, I teach this, and some people go, "Oh yeah, oh I get it." That's I hear that now, good. And some people just really don't get it. Don't hear it. So you know, people who hear other things, they just never hear. They don't hear aspiration. They don't hear light and dark l's. And it, it doesn't appear to be a you know, hearing loss kind of thing. They hear other small sounds, but that never makes any sense to them. So maybe I, some people have phonemes and some people don't.
3: <laughs> I have, uh, to some extent, I can produce the difference between light and dark L, but I can't hear it. I learned to produce it when I was taking Russian, but... Particularly if you've got an L at the end of a word. So Russian has the light dark L as different phonemes, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a minimal pair that has a light L on one of them and a dark L on the other one, I would try to figure it out based on context. But that would be about it. And my native dialect only has dark L. No, say leaf. Leaf. Well, it's hard to tell over the say, phone. Say feel. Feel. Mm. My regions where a lot of people are starting to say fill instead of feel, mm-hmm. those Ls are dark for the most part.
0: Hmm. I think it was dusky. It wasn't completely dark, but I see what okay. you're saying. Yeah. It was closer than it should be. Should.
3: I heard it should.
0: Yeah, I said should.
3: <laughs> it's not as bad
0: as like saying nascent or something, but I mean, it was for nascent, but it was... For what nascent? <laughs> you say nascent instead of nascent. Nobody is, says nascent. That is wrong. Is, Nobody
3: says that. Really you just we're made gonna, that up.
2: We're going to retire that nascent pronunciation <laughs> of nascent.
3: That's a good one. All right, nascent I nascent yes. sounds like it's an adjective for something that's kind of like what NASA would make. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not really a NASA thing, but it's kind of nascent.
2: It's nasty. I think that's nasty, isn't it? Nastish.
0: I was going to say, it's not quite Nassish, not up to the level of Nassish.
2: I like Nassi. It's snazzier.
0: I don't think we've heard Sherry's idea for something to retire.
2: Mercy, I have a list. You know, I just, I have a list and it could be longer. I was going to first just suggest that we get rid of tone, just entire (laughs) lexical tone, because that would speed my acquisition of Mandarin a lot. But I thought maybe that would be really self-serving. So I tried to think of something that would serve the public good. And so I do think that binary features have to go and i think if we ignore binary phonetic features those will just go away on their own we don't have to worry about them but i do think that it's plus past time that we give up semantic binary features we just got to stop this (laughs) and i think i have an endorsement for this from the union of bachelor priests too i think they would be ready (laughs) <laughs> Cause we don't we don't need that stuff. It doesn't help anybody.
1: That's true. It doesn't help it's anybody just,
2: learn anything. It makes
1: good intro textbook material. That's about it.
2: And then they argue about it. And then I have to put that diagram of the Brady Bunch on the board, which some of the students don't get anymore. Like, this is a plus boy, minus boy, plus oldest, plus youngest, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And it's becoming a problem because nobody watches the Brady Bunch anymore. And so then I have to explain the Brady Bunch. And then I've gone to this terrible place where I'm explaining the Brady Bunch in my graduate seminar. And I think, no, no, this can't be happening.
1: I don't think I've ever seen this diagram. Can you email it to me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever seen the Brady Bunch? Yes, of course. At the beginning of the show where they're all there and there's the the mom and dad and the kids. Yes. And so like the left row is plus girl and the... Right rows, plus boy, and the bottom rows. Is- but they're not labeled. But you label them. You label them. I see. Okay. I got it. <laughs> picture from the show. I got gotcha. you. I'm not
1: very graphical. I don't like arrows.
2: <laughs> I'm having a pedagogical breakthrough. I didn't think about the opening sequence and how they might be all lined up there. There. Wow. See? See? Okay. When I take it back, I want my binary features back. <laughs> just, just for one semester so I can put up the diagram and label it. <laughs> I just lamely wrote the words in columns. Show mm. you how lame I am.
0: Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I guess that works. And it's plus adult in the middle because there's the mom and dad and Alice, the yeah. housekeeper. Yeah. yeah. Oh. that's
1: asymmetrical. Or is she right in the middle? She's right in the middle.
0: Oh.
3: She might be ambiguous. Yeah, I, or- I think Roman Jakobson could read an awful lot into that. <laughs>
2: See, we have to save ourselves from this. I mean, I have to save myself from doing the Brady Bunch thing again, one more semester. So but we
3: those can get rid of it. binary features are kind of like, they're required by structuralism.
2: Why? And linguistics,
3: no. like, because the whole meaning of something is that it's not what it isn't, right? It's all distinctions. Now, of course... But why do the distinctions have to be binary?
2: Yeah, why can't we just have a place of articulation feature if we're going to have a
3: feature? But then it either has that place of articulation or it doesn't.
2: No, or it has another one.
3: It can be on a continuum. the other ones are all not that one.
0: Which you know because it's the one that it is and not the ones that it isn't.
3: Right. So (laughs) I'm not saying (laughs) we don't do this. I'm just saying that if you adopt like an old school structuralist position, it forces you to do that and a lot of linguistics is still kind of implicitly based on that. I mean a lot of that.
2: We have a the lot power.
3: of the modeling stuff is based on here we have a string of symbols that we have rules that manipulate and it's like what really does the symbol n mean, right? And it's like it means that it's not anything other than n. And what does the symbol np mean? It means that it's not any of the other symbols.
0: Okay. You're not making a strong argument for binarism here.
3: No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm just saying those model theoretic approaches, the whole thing about not having to worry about meaning in your syntax is tied into those symbols having meaning only relative to other symbols, right? That's fine, yeah. Okay. Well, that is a binary system. No,
2: it's not. And even if it is, we could retire that, too.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm more than happy to. That kind of goes along with getting rid of the arrows, too. <laughs> but nice. it gets rid of a lot of model theoretic stuff when't it.
2: And that really is my underlying goal. I mean, my surface level goal as well.
3: But we don't want
1: any more underlying goals.
2: That's right. So I'm just going to out and say it. We'll just sweep as much theory as we don't need just right out of here.
0: Okay, <laughs> good. So, <laughs> I have another one too, which is we should retire the notion that uh, all languages are of equal value.
1: Ooh, that's a challenging statement.
0: Yeah. I will agree that all languages modulo their cultural milieu are equally expressive and usable, but some languages are just objectively better than others. And we've actually talked about this twice in Specgram. There's Mutombo and Thompson's Rating the World's Languages. An excellent article, yes. Yep. And Cowell and Hernandez y Fernandez's rating the World's Languages, which expands upon the original. And the original article refers to it as a linguistic canard that all languages Mm. are equal. And I believe that is true.
1: And can you just recall for us the evaluation criteria that appear in those articles? I mean, how do we know which languages are better?
0: I can. You could
2: just admit that they're the ones you like. Just cut to the chase here.
0: Well, no. So it's simplicity of expression, clarity of expression, range of expressible content ease of acquisition, writing system quality, euphoniousness was the original set of criteria. And then the expanded set included poeticality, practical utility, conservativeness, linguistic imperialism, sexiness, coolness, the ability to swear and insult people, obstreperousness, and idiosyncrasy.
1: Now, are any of those binary features?
0: No, and in fact, some of them have U-shaped curves. So, for example, uh, imperialism. So, for example, under imperialism, both gerbil and English score very poorly. Gerbil is insufficiently imperialistic, and English is overly imperialistic. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a happy medium somewhere in the middle. And it's, what, Dutch? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not so much.
2: all Dutch. Everything is Dutch.
0: (laughs) The highest scoring in imperialism was Esperanto. (laughs) Ah, uh, speaking of think, things no. we could do without.
2: No, I think it's Klingon is the highest. <laughs> <that
0: bad. laughs> no, no, it has a maximum score, but that's not the maximum value, right? Oh. Klingon, it's too imperialistic, so that's bad. Oh, oh. So not too hot, not too cold, Klingon just
3: English. right. So it's kind of a modulo function. No! It's like you divide it by a certain amount of imperialacity, and you look at what's left over, and once it gets up to a certain point, it's gone over the limit, and so there it went.
0: No, because that would give you a discontinuous, non-differentiable step function, and we don't want that. Clearly. It's nice and smooth. It's a U-shaped function. It's smooth.
2: (laughs) You know, we could retire all U-shaped functions, too, if those get in our way for any reason.
0: (laughs) Now, hold on. They're very useful. That's what happens when you have a continuum. You're like, well, it gets from here to here. It gets better. And then you're like, oh, it gets worse. U-shape function. Inverted U-shape function.
3: Well, I have a solution to this, I think, because, you know, one of the problems with those papers is a number of the qualities that they're talking about seem to be based on the author's impression That they can directly perceive the amount of quality of this, like euphoniousness, right? Mm -hmm. Which is notoriously subjective and based on whatever language the analyst speaks natively.
1: I don't think so. I think it's based on not what the analyst speaks natively, but what the analyst is conditioned to think sounds nice. So English speakers traditionally rate French as euphonious rather than English.
3: Unless you actually play recordings of French at people and have them rate how euphonious they are, they don't have the same reaction. So You mean if they
0: actually hear it, it's not euphonious? Right. It's totally not. It
2: just makes you giggle. I mean, really, let's get serious.
0: Perhaps you're conflating the euphoniousness of French and the euphoniousness of French people. Perhaps. Because those would, in fact, be distinct. Yeah, yeah.
3: It, it might be a performance mm. problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what you do here is you say there's this one dimension that languages vary in, but it maps onto different perceptual dimensions in the observer. Okay. Mm hmm. And so it's kind of like the speed of light. It's always the same thing. But it seems to maximize in the language that you're at exactly the right perceptual velocity frame in relation to.
0: Hmm. Except the speed of light is the same in all frames.
3: Hmm. This is perceptual. There's quantum in here somewhere. <laughs> Lots of light like, handfuls of quantum. So, I think we
2: should retire yeah. anything that makes linguistics sound too much like physics.
3: I think my theory safely is unlike physics enough in that it's totally made up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, see, there you've got your perceptual frame because to a physicist, it doesn't sound anything like physics. To a linguist, it sounds like physics.
3: <laughs> if that sounds like actual physics, linguists we're in more trouble than i thought
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think you don't need any of those parameters really all you need for language value which i'm starting to accept as i'm listening to more is how good the language sounds when being spoken by a muppet and that's i think how we should rate all the languages and we get the one that sounds best when spoken by muppets and that's the best language
3: so that would be swedish
2: oh yeah absolutely followed by french
3: <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a Muppet speak Esperanto. We'd have to check that.
2: I don't think that can happen.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think the Count probably speaks Esperanto. <laughs> That's probably his native language. Isn't he from Councilvania or something? Probably, but I, it, probably. I probably speak Esperanto. Don't
2: remember.
3: Sylvania.
2: <laughs> Esperant Sylvanian. <laughs> I do have one more thing that we need to retire. I think we need to retire any language where there's a gender differences such that the women have an ergative system and the men don't. And I we need to retire any language where you cannot say your own name. That will make my life easier too.
0: See, that's exactly the kind of thing that an English speaker would say with all that linguistic imperialism. Let me come in here and show you how to run your language.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do have another theoretical thing we need to retire. It's not as much... Like, voluntary retirement as we need to, like, pack up its desk and lock it out of the building. (laughs) Okay? But that is using Greek letters when you don't have to. We should just forbid it. What do you mean when you don't have to? You often
1: have to. If you're working on Greek... If you don't have arrows, for example, what have you got? You're going to have to use Greek letters.
2: I was just going to suggest that we stick an arrow through the Greek letters and
3: just. (laughs) I think we need to wage a retirement encouragement campaign, or REC, as we call them in the business, on faux mathiness. Hmm. So your objection to Greek
1: letters is math, not the letters themselves. It's that you don't like
3: math. It's not that I don't like math. I kind of like some of it. It's that thing where linguists dress up in a math suit, the way that shaman dress up with bird feathers and stuff. Although actual shaman probably mean it. So it's kind of okay when they do it. But it's like when some guy from California who's not actually a shaman dresses up in bird feathers Because he's going to bilk a bunch of people out of money because the new age stuff or something, right? So it's like, well, no, it's not actually math. But I'm going to use this notation to make it look mathy because it's science when I do that. (laughs) You know, it's like I was going over with my class the other day that the kind of shorthand rules for syntax where you say, look... I want to show that I can have an adjective more than once, and the standard way you do that is you put a little n over the adjective, like it's an exponent, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. that's not an effing exponent. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to be like a square adjective. <laughs> <laughs> that's not even a Greek letter, I know. But that the faux mathiness thing is like, here's something that was invented for exponents. Let's put it in to make it look equation-y. It's like you're not squaring the adjective. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
0: Ah, but there's a a notational aspect to it that does make sense. Because when you say 3 to the 7th power, you're writing 3 times 3 times 3 times 3 times 3 times 3 times 3, right? So you're repeating it 7 times.
3: Yeah, and if you could repeat exactly the same adjectives several times, that would make sense, but you don't do that.
0: But, okay, well, I was going to say, and then you have three to the N, you know, it says you'll you'll some unknown number of times that you repeat it. An adjective to the end is you're repeating adjective slots, which can then be filled with...
3: But they don't multiply. There's no quantificational thing where they actually multiply. Right, right, but it's the syntactic... No, it's not. There is no actual multiplication there or anything. You put adjective to the fourth, it means you can have four adjectives, which is nothing like what tesseracting an adjective would be or whatever you call <laughs> a four. Well, and you
2: don't even really mean n, right? Because you don't even mean four. No, mean like three. no. I mean, n has to be less than some number.
3: You could just write adjective in green if you wanted to and say that just means you can add more than one. Let's
2: just but, get rid of all superscripts
3: too.
0: But people are already familiar with that other notation. Adjective to the n means adjective concatenated up to n times. I'm okay. But
3: concatenation is not exponents. See, the problem is, and this is why I'm objecting to it, it wouldn't necessarily be a problem if it was just, here's an arbitrary little notation system. And yeah, it is useful for writing shorthand. So it's useful as a shorthand thing. But it's not just a notation system. It's a notation system that lets people pose. (laughs) <laughs> and it's the posturing I'm objecting to and I think the best way to prevent that is just to say look it's not bad by itself but it's been abused you gotta like no this has just gotten silly
2: besides if you put a superscript n after an adjective there's a subset of people that will tell you that means the adjective is nasalized and so we can't have that
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: mm. no mm, mm. <laughs> oh. Oh. reason
0: adjectives, yes.
3: Or they're all negative adjectives. Hmm.
0: I feel like the adjective to the N is sort of a clever analogy, but I still take your larger point, if not that specific example. And because we were talking about it, I looked up one of my favorite quotes on this. And this is from some postmodernist, Julia Kristeva. And she says, Modern logic and even Boole's logic, which, starting from set theory, gives formalizations that are isomorphic to the functioning of language, are inoperative in the sphere of poetic language where one is not a limit. It is therefore impossible to formalize poetic language using the existing logical scientific procedures without denaturing it. A literary semiotics has to be made starting from a poetic logic in which the concept of power of the continuum would encompass the interval from zero to two, a continuum where zero denotes and one is implicitly transgressed.
3: I've got a clearer one from Jeffrey Pullum.
0: (laughs) Hold on a second. I would like to hear that. He's
3: not done. There are
0: four more paragraphs.
2: (laughs) Now, did you know that you'd said that? Like, if we play that back to you, will you recognize it?
0: (laughs) I did plan to read those words aloud, but not to have any content to them because there is none. It's just, just, to me, that's a clear example that's horrible of sort of like you said, dressing up in a math suit. (laughs) <laughs> it's like it's like one of those really sad seven dollar Halloween costumes. It's made out of plastic, and has a cardboard little face that goes across you with little string around the back. It's mm-hmm. so sad. It's so uh, that stuff just gets me. It makes me
2: want to hide into the bed. It really does. Power
0: of the continuum. Anytime anything is transgressed, you know something's
3: gone wrong.
2: Isn't that a science fiction thing? The power of the continuum? Isn't that like a Star Trek thing, right? Next Generation.
3: <laughs> I think it was Grayskull or something. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe that's Urgativity. I get those two mixed up. <laughs> By the power of Urgativity. <laughs>
2: they, um, um, we do need more linguistic superheroes. I mean, we've got Feature Girl. Obviously. We are
1: really short of linguistic superheroes. Okay. And it's hard to come up with names that are convincing.
3: There are villains, but there's the Scarlet Witch.
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: But the poem quote, and this was kind of what influenced the choice of the word suit in mine. It primed it. He's got this article where he's saying, and I'm going to be skipping over some words. But some of the bad press that formalization has attracted is due to people confusing it with at least three distractors. The last of which is the mindless translation of claims into the symbolic hair shirt of some hard-to-read proprietary notation. (laughs)
2: Arrows, (laughs) (laughs) Greek letters.
3: Yes, yes. Underlying tables and all the rest. Posturing.
0: Excuse me while I slip into my Greek letter hair shirt. Mm.
3: <laughs> it's in paid up.
1: <laughs> mm. Would you say that? That was Pullum, right? Yeah. A nascent critic.
3: <laughs> I don't think he's nascent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I assumed that was his early work. <laughs> I do agree though. We obviously need more linguistic superheroes.
0: No. You will recall that for the two thousand twelve Linguistless Fun Drive, they had an adventure of the illocutionary force, which was a team of linguistic superheroes. Oh, right. mm. And it featured General Ling, C Commando. <laughs> 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 snicker, Snicker. <laughs> uh, the Swaddish Buckler. Nice. Proto baggins.
1: Proto-baggins. Yes. Proto
0: baggins. Yes. Yes. Good, good. Max M quality. Uh, Not so good. <laughs> Couple that are hard to pronounce. <laughs>
2: are they spelled with Greek letters.
0: Worse, it's IPA. Anyway, so there, there are some. Oh, Symantique. Mm-hmm. Also, there was the Scarlet Witch.
2: Symantique is not a superhero. That is clearly a dancer of some sort or something. She
0: might be both. There's a picture of her in the uh, <laughs> Specgram article.
2: I see. I didn't know Specgram well, like- was that kind of magazine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. Some people read it just for the pictures.
2: <laughs> That's right. That's what I do.
1: Well, I guess we've kind of cleaned up the field here by now. <laughs> Perhaps. Is,
2: is there anything left?
0: Perhaps not.
3: I'm afraid to suggest anything else because there might be another Chris Tava quote on it.
2: <laughs> Nothing left but the data. <sighs> oh.
0: <laughs> well... If we're in that good a shape, then perhaps it is time to bring this episode of Language Made Difficult to an end. So that's all the time we have. Join us next time when we will give tips on getting the best speech rate when you need a loan word from a tree bank. That's bad.
2: Wow, that was really...
0: <laughs> yeah, thanks for all the suggestions you guys are sending me. So- <laughs> Did you have something to say, Bill?
3: What, what? Oh, I I'm... said goodbye. It just didn't work right. sub <laughs> oh. <laughs> Subvocal. Oh. <laughs>
4: I kind of like your voice like that.
3: <laughs> yes, uh-huh. my students like it like this, too, because it means they get films. <laughs> <laughs> we are full persnuck. Man, we have
1: persnuck. <laughs> Persnuckin. Nascent, nascent, or nascent, depending on your dialect.
0: No, not depending on your dialect. <laughs> <laughs> Holy cow. It's in the dictionary. That is wrong.
3: Nascent, there you go. Nascent?
0: No. Have you guys ever heard nascent before?
3: No. And I would remember because that's just obnoxious. It's the first one at dictionary.com. What?
1: Okay. No singing. No happiness. I, I don't, don't think, think our listeners are
3: that attentive. No, probably not. Wait, what, what,
2: what, did I, what did I just miss? I just.
3: He's going to erupt into a paroxysm uh, of modulos. Welcome back to Language
0: Made Difficult. Now we're going to discuss... uh... Well, uh we usually discuss that. Yeah. <laughs> try again. I, I lost. Yeah. And take two. Yeah.
2: Halo rule.
0: Halo rule.
2: That's transformative.
0: Awesome sauce.
2: It could be long. Let me try that again. It could be longer. Longer. <laughs> yes. Longer. Oh, longer. Long, longer. Long. Longer.
3: Longer. Longer. <laughs> longer.
2: It's really hard to say la l- and then put a pronounced longer. Put the g in there. I want to say longer. It could be longer.
0: I was thinking of whether I could try to convince all of you that you had all said, Trey really is the talented one. I'm so grateful he lets me be on the show. But I don't think that's going to work.
2: No. Trey really is the coherent witty one. It is so nice to be on the podcast.
1: Trey actually is the swell copacetic one. I'm so happy he lets me be on the program.
3: Trey, of course, he is the cool magic one. It's awesome to be on Language Made Difficult.
1: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You edit the podcast?
0: <laughs> yes, of course.